everyone. Thanks for joining. Today, I'm speaking with Daniel Buck. Daniel is an educator. He's also the founder of Chalkboard Review, and he's written for National Review Online and for City Journal. Uh, hey, Daniel, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, so I've been following you a little bit um, recently on Twitter. Uh, like I've been looking at some of the education stuff and some of the curriculum and stuff that was coming in. And then especially like with COVID now, there was like, you know, school choice, school opening, like what's going on with the unions now. So I wanted to get you on to talk a bit about education, school choice, where you think there's problems, where you can go from there. Mm -hmm. So if you wouldn't mind just starting like a little bit about yourself, like how you got into education and how you got to talking about some of these things. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I got into education because I wanted to be a teacher. It was, uh, parents pressured me to be a doctor and I got a little ways into that and realized I didn't want to do that. And I wanted to teach kids and I wanted to teach them about books. I'd always thought I was a science and math kind of brain. I got to college and looked back at it and realized like I spent all of my free time reading. I wrote terrible poetry, but I wrote poetry in my free time. I was on the school newspaper and it's kind of like, all right, you're, you're actually a bit of a, a book brain. Um, and you want to teach kids this kind of stuff. So I got an education just because I love teaching. I love talking about books. I love children. Um, and then how I got into writing about it um, and speaking up on it was I went through a grad program that was just honestly a glorified degree in progressive politics, um, which fine if that's the politics that you ascribe to, but that's not why I went to a grad program in education. I wanted to learn how to teach kids. I didn't want to learn, um, you know, I didn't want to read reasons that we shouldn't support voucher systems in my methods courses. I wanted to learn about instruction and the nuts and bolts of that kind of stuff. So I started writing on the side, didn't really tell anybody that I did it. And then only just this last summer, I started really pushing to try and publish um, what I wanted to say, speaking my mind on Twitter, making the occasional just little phone video. It's really easy to sit down with that and record some of my thoughts. And a couple of those have really taken off and people, a lot of people seem to think similar thoughts that I do. They just don't want to speak out because they're worried about their job. They're worried about their careers. They're worried about what other teachers are going to think about them and all those kinds of things. The teacher's college, because I keep hearing about some of the stuff in the colleges of education. Then I remember a couple of years back, I saw this thing about this school in New York city. And I think it was like a private Academy. And, you know, they were proudly saying that we're not, you know, our first goal is to make our students activists. And this is, you know, like primary school. So like mm -hmm. K through six type of thing. Um, is that in the colleges of education or is that, like, do you have to gravitate towards certain courses there or is that just mixed in with what they tell you? I mean, that was kind of the foundation of what I learned. Um, activist pedagogy. The, from a really esoteric, high-minded view, the, they would call it critical pedagogy, which would say mm -hmm. we're not there to teach students content necessarily. We're there to um, deconstruct what it mean, what education means, what it means to be educated, these kinds of things. And our conversation should be with students, um, helping them deconstruct what these terms mean. And, um, you know, they never actually say, well, what are we going to build in its place? 
but that was that was the foundation of what I learned. It wasn't even one course necessarily. It was the methods courses that was there undergirding everything. The 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 policy, the child psychology, it was all not just critical race theory, but what's called critical pedagogy, which is feminist pedagogy, um, post-colonial pedagogy, Marxist pedagogy, and these are these are. I'm not trying to use like you know, right-wing scary buzzwords here. This is just, this is what they called it in the courses. They said the quiet part out loud. (laughs) Okay, one thing you just said there, um, the right-wing, you know, talking points. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, I I spoke to a couple of people about this recently, and like, I see a lot of uh, similarities between the discussions around Islam and the discussions around this stuff. And my discussions around Islam going back to after 9-11 and then you know you had sam harris and hitchens and all those people talking about islam to some extent but as soon as you said something it's like oh that's a right-wing talking point it was a way to silence you you know um like especially someone like ayan hershey ali she was one of the first ex-muslims like recently to you know speak out that publicly and oh she's gone on fox it's a right-wing talking point she's just talking right-wing stuff and it's the same stuff here I mean, as far as critical theory, uh, no, I haven't read any of it except for a couple of papers because it's really dense. Um, but the people who are criticizing it, that's most of the people I see are coming from the left. But you still see the same kind of attack. It's just the, it's the same thing. You know, it, it's a way to shut you up. Like, I. Uh, um, yeah, I, I get that a lot being told, well, I'm only saying these things because I want to get on Fox or I'm only saying these things because I'm in the pocket of some think tank, which freelancing surprise, surprise pays absolutely nothing. Or when it does very, 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 very little. And that's few and far between most places. Um, if you're sharing your opinion, they're not going to pay you for it. Cause everyone wants to share their opinion. Um, and honestly, getting on Fox isn't like, the the getting notoriety is a double-sided coin because it's it, i mean it's fun don't get me wrong um having people be like like your posts and everything mm-hmm. but it's it's also really stressful because you get a lot of vitriol thrown at you like you get called yeah. a lot of me nasty names and some of it most of it 95 percent of it you know you can just shrug off but every once in a while it's somebody that you like or somebody that you know and anybody that says oh well these comments never get under my skin like yeah right i don't believe it um yeah no sorry I was gonna say it's just it's definitely there's a uh, shutting it down and not actually engaging with the argument and there are mm-hmm. arguments to be had there um, and I'm sure we'll get into some of those later but the okay because you know I see you post quite a bit about like you mentioned reading and you know but I see you post quite a bit about Shakespeare mm-hmm. you know I was lucky okay uh, so the school system in Quebec is slightly different uh, high school is from grade seven to 11. And then, then you have like junior college, then university. So it's, mm-hmm. it's the same number of years, but they break it up differently. Our high school, we were lucky. We had this, apparently he was a really well-known drama teacher in Canada. Like he used to go to the Stratford Festival here uh, in Ontario. He was known there. He was like apparently one of the best directors for kids. We did a Shakespeare play, like, or he put on a Shakespeare play, like the drama, the, you know, the drama club or whatever mm-hmm. every year. And that's the play we studied in English. Now, yeah, obviously not every kid's going to like it, but because it was a play that we were going to be seeing and we were engaging with it that way, for the most part, you know, 
everyone like go the lowest scale I'd say would be tolerated, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but most people enjoyed it. And, you know, some of us got really into it. I mean, like, like when you see this push to get rid of things like Shakespeare or get rid of, you know, well, Huck Finn's always on the chopping block and so is To Kill a Mockingbird. Like, mm-hmm. like how do you feel about that? Like, where do you, like, when you see that coming, like, especially when I see it coming from educators, that's where it freaks me out. Like, yeah, it, uh, it frustrates me. I don't know, because yeah. a lot of people are like, oh, Shakespeare is so boring. And I'm like, well, was Shakespeare boring or was your teacher boring? Um, because when I teach Shakespeare, my kids are right now um, like discussing among themselves what play they want to read next year. And they're giving the recommendations because I, I teach in a middle school, a very small one. So I teach them sixth, seventh and eighth. Um, so they're like really excited about what Shakespeare we're going to learn and read next year. Um, they were circled up in a little corner, not in a corner, but like it was, you know, the two minutes before class ended, we had finished early. I let them just pack up and chat and, you know, half the class circled up and they were reciting lines together at um, four square outside. They're reciting these lines together. Like Shakespeare is so, I'm clapping my hands. You can't see it off screen. Shakespeare is so engaging. I mean, Romeo and Juliet is about murder young love, family conflict, um, you know, not back in the day, uh, inter family wars, modern day, it was kind of like uh, gang fights almost. And I've taught in um, very, very, very privileged private schools and um, poor diverse public schools and kids connect with these books in either school and it has much more to do with the teacher, honestly, than the book itself. Um, man, I can go on about all of the things that Shakespeare has to offer. That's just that's just a bit of it. Yeah, I know. Okay, like the I think with us, it was because we were going to go because it was affiliated with the school and it was something that was going on, and it was you know some of the kids in your class were going to be acting in the play. That's why it was an extra incentive for us to kind of get engaged with it. But mm-hmm. again, what you like. Like Hamlet, it's kid pissed off at his stepdad, <laughs> you know, like, mm-hmm. you know, like, you know, he's you know, like, whatever, he's got trouble with his girlfriend. It's, I mean, it's relatable to teenagers pretty much anywhere. Yeah. And I think a lot of teachers are sometimes scared to make that connection, maybe because they don't <laughs> want to open up that box, but that's how I phrase it when I'm teaching it. It's like, okay, there's this guy that's angry at his stepdad. Now, something tells me a few people in here have been angry at their stepdads before. And kids aren't necessarily going to immediately make that connection, especially when the text is as difficult as it is. Like the teacher needs to be in there and help them relate it to their own life. And then we talk about it. So yeah, I think teachers need to make that connection for these kids and show them how it's relatable. I don't know if some teachers don't know themselves or they don't like the book themselves. Um, Like you said, performing it is a big difference too. Um, and this is, we're getting, this is more like instructional questions, not so much like the politics of teaching, but mm-hmm. if you're reading Shakespeare, show it. If you're reading Shakespeare, have kids volunteer, stand up. Um, my final project this year was they had to pick a scene with some friends and perform it. And they recorded it and they got really into it and got background n- music and all of this kind of stuff. And it was just, it was so much fun to do. And it just breaks my heart when I see kids that don't like Shakespeare or teachers that are hating on Shakespeare. Cause it just is so rich 
for quality instruction and learning. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm not going to argue with that there. But when you mentioned the the, the politics, mm-hmm. so like getting into that, if you're at a, a district school, like a district public school, how much leeway do you have? Like if you're given a curriculum, like, do you have some leeway in saying, okay, you know what? Um, like, do they give you a choice of three books, or they say you have to do this book this year, and then or can you play around with it a little bit or do you have to be sticking to it like to the letter type of thing? Yeah. I mean, that really depends school to school. Um, In my experience, the expectations that was that you stick to it, how much accountability was actually there uh, is a different question. So teachers would kind of follow the rough outline. If they were supposed to read Romeo and Juliet, they would read Romeo and Juliet. If they were supposed to do a choice unit, they would do a choice unit. Um, but some teachers just kind of went their own way and there wasn't any, honestly, there wasn't any accountability there. So if a teacher wanted to do something completely different, um, sometimes the administration might not even know. Um, at other times they might get a finger wag, but nothing would really happen after that. Um, so it, like I said, it depends school to school, depends classroom to classroom. In my own, it was a bit of both where there was an expectation, but then teachers chose to have some creative freedom, even if they weren't supposed to. Um, I'm trying to think where it was. There's a couple of places where I think it was in Tennessee. They, it was some Catholic school board. They banned Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. Now, if a teacher in that school board taught a Harry Potter book or brought it up, like, do they, are they going to expect some kind of punishment or something or, you know, I mean, at a private school, there's probably going to be more ability for there to be uh, punishment just because Mm -hmm. the teachers aren't unionized Um, at a public school. I don't know. Again, I can speak to my own experience. I also think there's, you know, if you're talking about that, you know, some of the more outlandish uh, stories that you've seen recently, the Dalton school in Manhattan, Um, or these schools that Chris Rufo at City Journal, I think he's at, is doing really good reporting on this, just kind of finding some of the most outlandish examples of progressive propaganda passing as instruction in school. I mean, at these schools, I would imagine that the pressure uh, morally to go along would, everyone would, just because there's a lot of um, there's a lot of peer pressure. I mean, it's like any, it's like any job teachers kind of know what's going on in each other's classrooms and the expectation is there, but it's not okay. Like I'm really worried about that because I see that spreading pretty much everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, I realize you got to take certain things with like, go, you know, like I read about 46 districts in Texas taking up a BLM uh, curriculum, but mm-hmm. you know, if you look at the number of districts in Texas, I mean, it's not, it's not a huge percentage, but on the other side of it as well, like bringing up Texas, it was Texas. And these are the only ones that I remember reading about Texas, Mississippi, Missouri, and maybe Tennessee as well, where they were downplaying Jim Crow, downplaying slavery. Like you had stuff, and this was up until like 2018. So, I mean, you had stuff on the other end as well, mm-hmm. you know, like it's right now, the, the progressive stuff is ascending and you see a lot more in a lot of places. And I think, that is going to do a lot more harm, but you still had, you know, some of this other stuff coming from the other side. Yeah. So- I, I, uh, I teach a unit on 
the Harlem Renaissance and we talk about Jim Crow mm-hmm. and the grittier, nastier, darker parts of American history. And I've had students tell me before, like, oh, I didn't know it was that bad. I thought it was just kind of people were in separate places. Mm-hmm. And like, that obviously wasn't a good thing, but it was just like, you know, they were happy in their separate places. That's a bit over, if it's an oversimplification of what the student said to me. But I mean, yeah, I've had, I've definitely had occurrences and experience like you're talking about stuff on the other side where it's like, okay, but we also need to talk about the darker parts of American history. Um, but sorry, I cut you off from making a bigger no, no, point. No, that's, that's, that's what I was kind of getting at. Like it's, you know, as much as I'm opposed to all this other stuff and I'm going to speak out against it. Cause I think, like I said, I think that's a bigger problem. I don't want, you know, like what I, the, the, let's just say, just go back to the Texas thing, the 56 or 46 districts that are doing the BLM um, curriculum now. And that's an overcorrection from the other thing. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't want another overcorrection going back, you know, in the opposite direction. Like, like you said, like teach the history, teach the good and the bad, show the progress that's been made, mm-hmm. you know, and show why the progress has been made. And I, I don't understand why that's so controversial to say that, okay, yeah, you know, this country did some shitty things. Here's why. And mm-hmm. here, you know, and, but these were the ideals and we, slowly decided to start living up to them i mean like i don't know why that's so controversial uh, <laughs> two ways i can think of going with that one why is it controversial i think people a lot of people now think that our founding ideals are controversial you know i heard mm-hmm. um i've heard people say professors say um you know the constitution was a pro-slavery document and it was created to perpetuate the system, which it wasn't. If you look, I read the Federalist Papers, and if you look at them, um, I think it was Hamilton says, you know, we're going to um, accept something that we don't like, the three-fifths compromise, to pass this constitution, and we know that it is completely antithetical to slavery, these ideals of liberty, and so over the course of time, this document, the constitution is going to um, eradicate this. It's not moral evil, isn't what he calls it. You know, it's one of the framers of the constitution is saying, we're going to pass this thing to get rid of slavery. So there's that way to go with it, where some people think that our founding ideals are controversial and that they are wrong. And I think that's just a misunderstanding of American ideals. The other controversy when we're, is who makes the decision about what we teach? You know, there's the push by a lot in the media, by the New York Times to teach these critical race theory ideas of history, narratives of history. And then there's a counter push while we need a patriotic curriculum. Um, And we're going to craft a uh, patriotic curriculum at the federal level to teach American ideals and all these kinds of things. And if you ask me, this gets then to the question of school choice, which is, I don't necessarily mind if one school has the 1619 project curriculum and another school has the patriotic curriculum. Um, What if we have two schools that do one of each and one teaches the actual just facts of the history and then let parents decide and something tells me neither of these ideological camps are going to actually get the test scores, neither of them are going to have a successful education, but it's the people that are returning to, let's just teach the facts, let's teach the history, let's read good books. These schools are going to start to succeed that are doing away with all of these culture war, stupid fights. These schools are going to start to succeed and then people are going to flock to them. 
And then these other schools that are losing students then are pressured to change their ways or else have to shut down. So it's that kind of, and then again, that's getting to the school choice issue. But I mean, okay, like I don't want the government pushing down like the 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 Trump 1776 uh, thing that he had. Mm-hmm. Didn't like it. But one thing that kind of bothered me about that, okay, and, okay, like I'm in Canada, so th- you know, I really don't have a dog in the fight. I just I just don't think it's insane. But, mm-hmm. uh, but his thing was, I don't like the way it was written. But the 1776 Unites Project, which is completely separate, has nothing to do with what Trump did. But it was actually mm-hmm. that was a bunch of black scholars who said, you know what, 1619 Project is, you know, we think it's false. We think it's wrong. And it's, so oh, I mean, there's people like Ian Rowe on it. I think John McWhorter wrote for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wilford Riley. There's a whole bunch of people like Bob Woodson. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean. If it was a choice between the 1619 and the 1776 Unites, you know, I'd probably go to a school that has a 1776 Unites because I, I don't think that, you know, I, I, I don't know if you know Ian Rowe or if you've heard of him, mm-hmm. but, you know, I don't think he would shy away from teaching the grittier parts of slavery and Jim Crow and, you know, segregation and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but again, like I, because I'm seeing it in Canada as well, where, you know, um, more, it's most more post-colonial here. The critical race theory stuff is starting to come in, um, in the last year or two. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, you know, well, we're committing a genocide against the first nations people. It's like, no, we're not, you know, it's, it's, it's things like that. Like I, it's sorry, I, rambling here a bit, but ramble away. Yeah. The, the, <clears throat> the civics stuff. Again, I was looking into this. I think there's two states that that only require civics as a uh, like only have civics as a requirement to graduate. That's there's only two. The rest of it got mixed into social like social science or something like that. I could be completely wrong about that, but that's what I remember seeing. Like when you mentioned kids not knowing history, but if they're not learning proper civics, if they're not learning you know, not just your rights, but also your obligations as a citizen. I mean. How do you expect them to learn history? Yeah, I I think curriculum is a huge part of this debate that is missed out on, at least in, edu- in American education circles. Um, American education debates are much more about funding and school choice in the systems. I see a lot more of this at the UK, honestly. Um, I, at least on Twitter, I engage with like UK teacher Twitter a lot. And they're arguing much more about like, well, what should our classes be? What should our curriculum be? They're also a much smaller country, which makes it easier. Um, But this idea that, well, should students design their curriculum or should teachers design their curriculum? And that might kind of get to it where we should require a civics class. We should require a class that teaches um, the World War II that, you know, in America that reads our founding documents, that learns about the revolution and reads the constitution and reads the Bill of Rights. And these are things that every kid should learn. Um, this idea that every kid, there's a this base of knowledge that people ought to know um, was kind of broadly accepted until John, about John Dewey in the early 1900s, he was an educational philosopher that said, well, there's no content that's worth learning in and of itself. 
Um, it's all about, you know, skills and centering around what the kids want to learn. And I just reject that idea. Cause like you said, there, there are some things we need to know, like how can we have a functioning society if in America, um, I don't remember the exact number. It's something like 25% of people can't name a single branch of the U S government. How can you make a smart voting decision or have a valid conversation about politics or read New York times and understand it if you don't know the basics of the government. So there's this, this idea that, you know, there are things that people ought to know and that's controversial to say nowadays, but um, we need to push that and advance that idea and make that argument and look at the schools that are doing that and are succeeding because of it. You've mentioned school choice a couple of times here and like that, I've spoken to a couple of people about that as well. Now, okay. I was lucky growing up here. Um, my parents came to Canada. We moved to Montreal and it was just before a law passed that if you hadn't, if your parents hadn't gone to an English school, you couldn't go to an English school. So I had to go into a French school mm. and you know, we came over here from India. I spoke English, didn't speak French. So it would have been kind of difficult right at the very start. Uh, but with that too, we had choice of, you know, any school in the public system pretty much. Mm-hmm. And from kindergarten to grade six, uh, a couple of times it was because I moved, but I went to eight different schools <laughs> and it was just cause, you know, mm-hmm. no, it was, it was my mom. Uh, oh, I heard this school is really good. I'm going to send you there. And then it's like, Oh, I heard this school is even better. I'm going to send you. There. <laughs> yeah. I've had students like that, that jump around from school to school yeah. to school and are only at one each year. And they're like, look out for something better. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, okay, but that's like I said, that was my mom. But I, I'm saying that, like, that's a little excessive. But she had the choice. Mm-hmm. Now, I see that coming up over and over again in the states, where you know, oh, we need a good education, but if the school in the neighborhood where the kids are is not doing well, but there's a school just a little bit further away where the parents want to send them, and that other school can take them, what's the reasoning behind stopping that? Like why, you know, shouldn't parents have the right to choose where to send their kids? Like, or at least start at, you know, get a shot at sending them somewhere if there's a waiting list or something. Yeah. I think the, the argument against it. So we have school A and school B school A is failing the students. School B just next door is doing great. Mm. Kids are going to start to funnel over to school B. And the question is what happens to school A, this original school, as it starts to lose all of the, you know, who are the kids that are going to move first? The families, the parents, the kids with means. Um, again, this is as the argument runs. I'm not saying I necessarily agree with this, um, but they would say, you know, well, all of the most affluent, the most privileged kids are going to leave, leaving behind the least privileged kids, leaving behind the worst teachers. And then school A is just going to become even worse than it was before. <sighs> I mean, it's sort of a risk, but that it, it misunderstands the system. Um, what the, the school choice rejoinder response to that is, well, there are a few different scenarios, the way, the way the system would cope with that problem. Um, school B, as it continues, the one that's succeeding continues to get more students. That means it also gets more funds and can expand space, can, um, you know, cope with more students, can hire more staff. Um, if they're doing well enough, you know, like added an addition onto the school. You, we look at there are systems of charters, like uncommon schools that just like keep building new schools because people keep flocking to them and people want them. So they expand and more and more options open, um, more and more 
space opens at these schools that are succeeding. So um, school B can expand. School A will be pressured to actually change its teaching. It's, you know, I, I've been in schools that have adopted a lot of really bad instruction, a lot of really bad pedagogy, and it's all based in ideology and they just keep doing it. Cause even if they're failing, they keep getting public monies and it's a monopoly and they're never actually pressured to change. But if they start losing students and then they start losing money, they're actually, their bottom line is threatened and for better or for worse, people's money influences behavior. Um, we can pretend like it doesn't, but it does. And once that school's bottom line is actually threatened, they're gonna start to adopt best practices, what actually works, not just this, not just necessarily what aligns with their own ideology. Um, so that's kind of like two, two answers to that idea of, well, why not school choice? Yep. Like so, Thomas Sowell's latest book, uh, you know, "Charter Schools and Their Enemies." Mm-hmm. And I haven't read it, but I it's on my list. Yeah, and then I also, like I said, I recently spoke with Ian Rowe, mm-hmm. and they both mentioned the same thing. Like Ian Rowe, he said that he actually had charter schools in the Bronx, that they were in the same physical building as a district public school, mm-hmm. and so they were getting the same population, same everything. Like you know, like the students are pretty pretty much the same, and it's the same building. The charter school would do. You know, it's in the top of the city. The district school is at the bottom of the city. Like mm-hmm. it was far as standings go. <clears throat> when you're looking at something like that, I mean, that's that's kind of hard to dispute. Well, shouldn't school A then kind of switch to the same model as school B? I mean, you know, like, I I understand there's unions and I understand budgeting things. I you know, like I, I've worked for governments. I understand some of those problems, but. It, it doesn't take a genius to see that. Okay, look, you know, it's in the same building. It's the same kids. It's everything mm-hmm. is the same, but they're trying something and it's working. Yeah, so, I I think a lot of that honestly comes back to ideology. I don't know if that's an overly simplistic or uh, a poor explanation of it, but Michaela School in London. Have you heard of it? Yeah, um, I spoke yeah. with Catherine. Oh yeah, yeah, you mentioned that. Um, incredibly successful, but people don't follow it because they think her methods are authoritarian. You know, there's the, the she. I'm reading the latest book that their school put out, "The Power of Culture." I don't have it next. You know, I always had to show it, give a little uh, book sales. Not not for me. I don't make money off of it. Um, but they're very adamant about teacher authority and people don't like that because you know oh well telling kids what to do is oppressive giving them consequences doesn't actually change their behavior um very this very Rousseauian ideas of like oh we're all just we're all just perfect and if society were just perfect then everyone would be perfect and i mean that's just not the case that's it's a false understanding of human nature and people don't want to change their ways because something, someone like Catherine has a very different understanding of human nature, of what education ought to be, um, of what is worth teaching and learning. And people, people don't want to change their minds. They don't want to see what's working and accept that because it's, it, it touches on so many of their first principles that they disagree with. 
Now you said like people don't want to copy what's working, but now it seems like they want to dismantle what's working. Mm. Like what's going on with the, you know, uh, Thomas Jefferson high in, in West Virginia and in all these like, you know, elite schools or, um, you know, I don't know if they're going to do it. Like, I know they're also doing it to private or public schools as well, but you know, they want to put in a lottery system. They want to get rid of grading, like this kind of stuff. I mean, if kids aren't, you know, like again, looking at some of the statistics, I could be wrong about some of these. So correct me, please. Like, uh, I think Buffalo, it's only like twenty percent could read at grade level. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the one I saw for grade twelve, like the the recent survey, was like thirty six percent of kids in the country and grade 12 can only read it you know the, can read a grade level like when you have things like that i mean getting rid of the grading system getting rid of the, like you're just burying your head in the sand you're not fixing anything like doesn't anyone again i i, I gotta wonder about teachers not speaking up and i mean i don't want to you know i know it's not just teachers and i don't want to like you know like, i'm not trying to shit on teachers or anything here but it just there's got to be something like it's. Just, I don't understand why it it's just passing through so so quickly. And I know the ideology behind some of this, but it's still. There's got to be a couple of old school teachers who are like, "Come on, this is just you know, this is not good." Well, this gets back to the where we started this conversation with the critical theory in universities. Um, I was told that we overly worship the written word, and so you know we put an overemphasis on reading. Like, I, I, I can't, like, it's just so ridiculous. It's so ridiculous. Um, so we worship the written word or they question, well, how much do standardized tests actually measure, right? So even if Michaela School or Uncommon is succeeding on the standardized tests, well, the standardized tests are racist. They don't actually measure anything. So we can't rely on them. They want to, the, the same critics of Uncommon Schools or Michaela want to use these same standardized tests to decry the disparities in the system, right? The differences in who like um, whites uh, have a much higher literacy rates than African-Americans. And yeah, that's an injustice. Great. But like, we can't use the standardized tests to decry this disparity and then not celebrate the schools that are fixing it and equalizing it. But what about, you know, Asian, like South and East Asians? I mean, they're doing, you know, on like the SATs and all that, they do much better than, than whites. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, like that's a really weird white supremacist system, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know. And okay, that that thing. Like I saw there was a, I mean there was a Smithsonian that, but they took it down. But there's a workshop in New York City. It was an online workshop about getting rid of white supremacy culture in schools, and that was some mm-hmm. of the stuff like objectivity, love of the written word, mm-hmm. you know, professionalism. I'm like, okay, I'm brown. That insults the hell out of me. You know, I, I'm sorry. Like, I keep ranting about this. The numbers we use are called Arabic numerals because the Arabs stole them from India. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the concept of zero comes from there. Um, I put this up the other day. There's a quote from Plato about Egypt talking about math, uh, like mathematics. And he's saying, you know, he's talking about how kids in Egypt were like human beings compared to the pigs in Greece because the pigs in Greece couldn't count. <laughs> and like, you know, like, and so, I mean, to call this like white supremacy and uh, okay, uh, you know, I did a lot of work overseas and I said, I was born in India. I go back there. If you go, I'm not talking about like professional meetings and I'm not talking about, um, you know, schools and things like that. But 
if you're getting some work done and someone's going to come by and um, fix your cable, like here they say, you know, we'll come there between eight and noon. Mm-hmm. Right? They're like, yeah, yeah, we'll be there Friday morning and then they'll show up like Sunday afternoon. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of a given. And you just kind of deal with it because all kinds of stuff happens and there's bribes and there's all kinds of other crap. So mm-hmm. people just kind of deal with it. But to say that, okay, well, that's, you know, punctuality is a white thing and don't expect, you know, be culturally sensitive and don't penalize kids because they don't hand it on time. I mean, that's a racist trope that you're saying, like, non-white people are lazy. I mean, mm-hmm. that's basically all it is. It's just mm-hmm. dressed up in nice words. Mm-hmm. Like, um, I mean, I know some parents, like there's that um, a woman uh, in Nevada who's suing and there's some parents uh, fighting back, but are more and more parents becoming aware of this and speaking out or are you seeing that or like parents just still not aware of what's going on? Uh, I think more parents are getting an eye on it. I think they're seeing what their kids are doing with online learning. I think uh, education is kind of becoming a trending issue. It was always not so much a joke, more so a lament that politicians and commentators didn't really care about education. It was never a hot button controversial issue but I'm seeing lots of reporting on it now and I'm seeing articles being published on it now and I'm seeing people talking about it because I think things are just getting more and more and more outlandish and uh, support for things like school choice is increasing. Um, It's people are, it's at the beginning, Mm -hmm. but people are starting to take notice. What about the openings now? Like, cause I mean, We've got, okay, I don't have kids, but as far as I know, schools are open here. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it varies province to province. Mm-hmm. But when you have the CDC saying, you know, there's no problem with school opening. I mean, you've got schools open other parts of the world. Why are unions kind of hesitant to open the schools? Because... I don't know. I honestly don't know. I I wrote a piece on this for National Review and I tried to find a counter argument, right? When I'm, any piece I'm writing, I read the counter argument. I have a bookcase full of books on progressive pedagogy that I've read because if I'm going to be spending my commentary side career dunking on progressive pedagogy, I need to understand it, right? Um, I looked up and trying to find counter arguments for why schools shouldn't be open. I looked at Vox. I looked at Mother Jones, for God's sake. And there was nothing. They all were saying schools should be open. The, what's coming from the teachers unions is they want teachers vaccinated before we return. Or you'll hear um, how many teachers need to die before schools close back down again. And it's very pathos-laden rhetoric. And it's fear-mongering of sorts. And, but just the science just doesn't, it doesn't support it. And I get it. I understand COVID is a really scary disease. And if there weren't any trade-offs, I would say, fine. Leave schools closed. Play it safe. Um, you know, but one, the science shows that schools are not a big uh, contributor to community widespread of COVID. Two, um, they've been tracking it, and the rate of COVID being passed from students to teachers is 
minuscule. It is so small. It is so itty bitty. Um, you know, when and it's a tragedy every time it happens when teachers pass from COVID, they've gotten it from somewhere else, not from schools. And again, even with that, I would understand keeping schools closed, play it safe, there wasn't a trade-off, but there is student learning, student mental health, the economy when parents have to stay home to um, take care of their kids during online learning, there is a trade-off. Um, and so the, there is a counter argument there, but it just doesn't, it doesn't hold up and it relies completely on pathos, on emotion. And like, here's where, again, school choice might, you know, come in handy if you had that choice. Because I read about one woman, I think she moved her family from California to Colorado so she could send her kids back to school. And it's, I mean, okay, not everyone has the luxury to be able to go from you know one state to the other. But mm-hmm. if you had a couple of different schools in your neighborhood and some were open, some were closed, and you had the choice. Mm-hmm. I mean. And I- I've been careful to say that. Um, and I'm glad you bring it up. I've been careful to say that when I've written on this, where I, I'm never going to say everyone should do A or everyone should do B, especially in a country of 300 million people um, that's massive with 50 different states. But I just want parents to have a choice, right? There could be two schools in this local district and one high school opens, one high school stays online. Or, um, you know, until everyone's vaccinated, um, people can choose to go in person and sign up for classes with teachers that are in person or stay home, be hybrid, all of these kinds of things. I just want people to have a choice to, to, to make their own determination, to look at the facts, to look at their own, you know, what risk factors do they have? Um, who do they know? Who are they in contact with? What do they feel safe doing? And just to have their own um, choice. Okay. And I mean, I agree with that. Like there's, I'm sure there's some kids that are doing better, you know, like the parents at home, parents are helping, they're doing online learning and they might be actually doing better than they were in school for some reason. Mm-hmm. And, like, and obviously, you know, like, a, like I said, following this a little bit and just reading more and more about, you know, like, kids are losing a year the like you know like the, the the rates of reading and like mathematics and all that that was all dropping and it's just like okay so are you gonna you know if kids are that far behind you're gonna have to have them redo a year anyways mm-hmm. like i mean I, I don't see how you can not like i don't see how you can just pass them without making sure that they know what they're supposed to be doing but again it's that choice like <clears throat> The choice thing is that still like I still don't get this. Like, is that a money thing or is that power or is that the opposition to it? Yeah. I mean like, why couldn't charter school teachers be unionized? I mean they're they're public schools. They're not they're just not district schools, right? So like why couldn't they be unionized? You know, like why couldn't you have a union of private school teachers as well or whatever? I, I don't know. You could, just most of them don't want to. Yeah. No, no, I, I get it. <laughs> it draws a certain kind of, a certain uh, ideology of teacher to charter schools and to um, private schools. Even, you know, a, a lot of them are still on the left, but then they're more so the center left if they are, or the uh, anti-woke left or that kind of thing. 
Um, the opposition to it, again, it's the worry about the schools that are losing students. It's also just a completely different conception of what education should be. I think people like you and I see educating kids as the goal. And if a homeschool or a charter school or a private school or an online school or a school in a different district is doing it best for a kid, let them follow that means, right? The, the, the educated person is the end. How they get there, the means can differ. And I think a lot of people see traditional public schools as the end, right? It's not the educating kids isn't the end. The traditional public school is both the means and the end. And they, they only want, they don't want um, competition. They don't want charter schools. They don't want um, any of these other things to succeed because it undermines the traditional public schools, which I, I get it. But at the same time, if we're educating our kids a better way in a different system, in one that relies on charter schools and choice, if that's doing it better, then we need to change the system. And guess what it's going to? And yeah, you're getting me all worked up now. This is no, okay, but, like, I get. but but even the choice thing, um, let's say, you know, you, know, you, you got a, a family's got a couple of kids. One kid's doing really well in the district school. One kid's doing awesome in the charter school, but they're not doing, you know, the one that's doing well in the charter school doesn't do well in, in the district school and vice versa. Mm -hmm. I mean, if they have that choice, again, like they're, like parents want to do what's best for their kids for the most part. I mean, I know mm -hmm. there's some out there that, you know, who could probably disagree with that, but, um, but yeah, like the, the, the whole choice thing, but like, I don't want to keep you too, too much longer, but I want to ask you one last thing about like the schools and the choice and the education right here. What about like vocational stuff? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, okay. So I went through high school in the eighties and I started college in the late eighties. Mm -hmm. But even back then you had that big push for go to college, go to college, go to college. Mm -hmm. You know, I had woodshop in high school. Um, you know, we were taking, we, we were supposed to take a couple of electives. So, I mean, I took things like that, but you still had some of those courses. You didn't have shop like, you know, like, uh, like car repair or anything like that, but you still mm -hmm. had like, you know, wood, wood shop and things. But why not stress? You know, like when did it happen that, you know, carpentry is lesser work than a philosophy professor at a university. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, you know, yeah. you're providing a good service. It's, it's, you know, it's skilled labor. It's, it's, I mean, you can teach a car, you know, when you're teaching a kid carpentry, you can teach that kid math. Mm -hmm. I mean, he needs to know math or she needs to know math to, to work, you know, work as a carpenter. Mm -hmm. Like, like when like is that even a discussion at any points like bringing some of that stuff back because you know college isn't for everyone mm -hmm. you know uh, i have friends who are all in trades and some of them are better read than you know my friends who have like bachelors and masters because mm -hmm. they went to school and they stopped and that's it you know like well, yeah, because they went to school and they didn't actually. I, I've been to college and a lot of those kids don't do those readings. <laughs> They're busy doing other things. They're not learning anything. <laughs> exactly. But I mean, like, wh why isn't that an option anymore? Like, Because uh, there are so many competing theories of schools and education and what they ought to be. And so many public schools are this hodgepodge of all of them. 
So you kind of have like this classical learning, which is like, we're going to teach the kids, we're going to teach the future aristocrats. We're going to teach them the Shakespeare, the Plutarch, the grammar, the rhetoric, the logic, the handwriting. You get these, what we might call like project-based learning, where we're going to let the kids um, design their own curriculum and everyone's going to wear ankle bracelets. And I'm kind of, I'm, I'm both poking fun at all of these people as I'm doing it. Um, and then you get like the vocational school, like, um, whatever books I need to learn. I need to le- learn my, my math and my reading. And then I want to pick up a hammer and learn how to build something practical with my hands. And these are like three very different ideas about what school should be. And they're, these three ideas are fighting over, well, what are the public schools going to be? And none of them is really winning out. And so they're just a hodgepodge of all three. And that's, again, it it comes back to school choice. It's like, why can't we have all three of those in a district? Why couldn't we have a classical school, a Montessori school and a vocational school? And once kids get to high school, they can pick which one they want to go to. But I mean, the the choice for the schools, I get that. But I mean, the idea that you have to go to college. Yeah, no, okay. I see where you're going. Like, like, you know, like, Again, carpenter, plumber, mm-hmm. any of the trades. I mean, you make good money. You're you're not stuck with whatever a couple hundred thousand dollars in debt if you go to an Ivy League. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, why? I, I I don't know. I don't see why that's like why those careers are looked down upon in the education system as well. I mean, they're you know, they they shouldn't be. Yeah, no, I mean, I agree with you completely. Um, I have a master's degree in education, but I can't change oil in my car. And the the person who is um, who comes in and changes out, um, you know, light fixtures or power sockets or redoes a bathroom for somebody, like they are doing probably more good for this world than a lot of academics sitting in their ivory tower. Um, sipping their espresso and pushing, pushing their glasses. And I say that as somebody like the end goal for me is to kind of be a professor in an ivory tower, but that's like, there needs to be a certain amount of modesty that goes with that And society needs, uh, I'm, I'm going to pull an analogy from the Bible at this point, but like the human body needs fingers and a nose and the eye and arms and shoulders and bones and everything. And it can't function unless it has all of these. And the hand isn't more important than the nose, isn't more important than the aorta. And when we have society, um, we do need the people with their glasses up in the ivory towers. And then we also need the people that are like building the actual buildings of society. How we get back to that understanding of knowledge and society, I don't know. Your guess is as best as mine. Like you're, you're, you're preaching to the choir, choir right now, though. But I mean, like, uh, okay, you know, certain things I can understand, you know, if you can automate garbage collection, yeah, fine. I don't think anyone aspires to be a garbage man. Like, I, I mm-hmm. really don't, you know, like, okay. Mm-hmm. That, but but even like the, the working with the hands, I still think it would be good, you know, okay, I, I work in IT. I did really well academically. Mm-hmm. I was a horrible student. I got good marks. I, okay, I was a really bad student, but I got decent marks. So I had a good memory, but, mm-hmm. you know, um, the, but I like woodworking. I like mm-hmm. doing stuff with my hands. Mm-hmm. And you know, you even if you are academically sound, you know, 
good or whatever, if you're an egghead or a nerd or whatever they call the kids in these days, mm-hmm. you know, learn how to, you know, like I said, learn how to fix a motor, you know, or mm-hmm. learn how to build something, do something with your hands, take an art class, mm-hmm. do something other than your, your academic teachings. I mean, and same thing for like someone who wants to go into vocational school, read Shakespeare, uh-huh. read, you know, read Mark Twain, read Melville. And when you mentioned the Harvard Harlem, Harlem Renaissance, like read, you know, uh, Baldwin, if you want, like, I, I, again, with the choice, the kids should have the choice. Okay. You know, I want to go into vocational school, but I'd like to take an occasional class where I'm mm-hmm. enriching myself in some other way. And to me, that's okay. You're going to get a much better person. You're going to get a much better society. And like, you're going to give people more commonalities. They can mm-hmm. at least talk to each other about similar things that, you know, like, again, I, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't study this stuff. I just read about it and rant. So I don't know. I don't get mm-hmm. it. Like, you know, I, I just yeah. don't get that. Yeah. And I think that's also, a, it's a personal decision too. Like you said, somebody that's working in a trade deciding to pick up um, Melville or Shakespeare and realizing that great books do enrich our life and I am an amateur woodworker myself um, and I'm not any good at it, but like going outside to my garage, at least when it's warm out, I live in Wisconsin. So sometimes it's, you know, negative 30 and I'm not going to go out in my garage when it's negative 30, but over the summer going out there and using my circular saw and making measures and building a bookcase or a planter box or a t- like a really I haven't built a table yet. That's next up. So I won't say building a table to build a table. Um, but doing that has enriched my life too. And taught me um, a lot, taught me how to slow down, taught me how to be precise and do it right. The first time um, taught me to protect my fingers and eyes because they're <laughs> going to get chopped off if I don't. Um, and yeah, that, that while, well-rounded education, but I mean, even if I think people, so I kind of fall more into the classical education camp of things, but if you read Aristotle, if you read Plato, they say that these people should practice gymnastics and go out into the world. So they're not um, completely removed from it. So they're not, uh, he uses some language. I think people would disagree with nowadays. He, he talks about doe bodied academics or something along those lines. Um, <laughs> like we should train our bodies and our minds. We should read great books and build book cases and, uh, a robust understanding of what it means to be educated. I do think would involve both of those camps, working with your hands, working with your minds. I mean, our, we are made up of bodies and minds, so we should train both of them. So again, you're, you're preaching to the choir right now. I completely agree with you. Yeah. No, I, like in my high schools and stuff, like when I went, we had elective courses. So, you know, one year, a couple of years I took woodworking. One year I took AV. Mm-hmm. It was just, I mean, I had to make a one minute claymation movie. I mean, and when you know, at the start of the year, he's like, okay, you're going to have this done by the end of the year. We're all laughing. Like, hey, what's a one minute movie? How long do you think it's going to take? And then you start doing the claymation. It's like, oh my mm-hmm. God. This is, but Again, these are cool little things. They're fun. Uh-huh. You learn something else. I, I mean, that's still like, I just shake my head. An education system that kind of shies away from types of learning, and I'm like, no, just, 
it boggles the mind. Anyways, look, like I said, I don't want to keep you too, too much longer. If you got any last words you want to say about any of this stuff, go ahead, let people know where they can get a hold of you and you can go for um, I mean, I, we, I feel like we've covered a lot, so I don't have anything add to, add, to add to the conversation. You can follow me at Twitter at Mr. Daniel Buck, um, because all the other iterations of Daniel Buck were taken. Um, but there you'll find the writing that I do. I started a little publication called the Chalkboard Review to publish some of these ideas in education that don't get talked about as much, that don't get the... Um, credence at universities or among unit among unions um, to try and give a, a voice to these other teachers that are thinking these kinds of thoughts in their heads and don't know where to go to read them. Um, so again, Mr. Daniel Buck or the chalkboard review, um, but you'll find everything that I write. You find the memes that I make, the tweets that I publish, the arguments that I get in um, all on Twitter. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not on anything else because one social media is addicting enough. That's pretty much it. All right. Uh-huh. Well, thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I enjoyed this. You made yeah. you made me think about some new things. I'm gonna have to go think about now when I walk my dog after this. Like, oh, yeah, good point. I gotta think about that now. <laughs> well, well, thanks a lot again, Daniel, and thank you everyone for listening. <laughs>